Hey, well, if you're new to the conversation, these last 11 weeks, we have been in a vision casting season based on the Great Commission by Jesus in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus told his disciples on that mountain right there that you see in the the background, he says, you go and you make disciples of all nations, which was wildly countercultural in that moment because all nations meant people that weren't like them, people that they actually hated. And Jesus said, you go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and I will be with you always to the end of the age. And kind of the overarching question that we framed up the series around was like, what if the last thing that he said is the first thing he wants to talk about when he sees us? Come on, somebody. Like, what if the last thing he said is the first thing he asks us about? And so we've been unpacking these 10 initiatives as we're 10 years away from the 2,000-year anniversary of the Great Commission. So if Jesus died in 33 and it's going to be 2033, what is it going to look like at the 2,000-year anniversary? Now, I know some of you may be thinking, well, did he really die in 33? What if it was 32. This is where you just go with the visionaries, okay? (laughs) This is where it works. And so we've just been looking, what would it look like to spend a decade of our lives individually, personally, just wrapped around these 10 initiatives? What would it look like to spend a decade and look back over those 10 years and say, man, that was a good decade right there. Like that was worth it. Because there's a lot of decades, sometimes you look back, you're like, that was terrible. I don't want to do that again. But this one will be one that you can be proud of. But then also as an organization, what would it look like for us to be able to move forward with just crystal clarity around everything that God has, has told us about. And so today what we want to talk about is the final, uh, the final uh, initiative in the one of 10. And it's just this idea that we would be a sacrificially generous church, that we have generously given everything needed to accomplish Jesus' great commission so that we can live into a story bigger than ourselves. Man, we'll have some stories, to t- some songs to tell the story. We'll have some scars from our journey. Come on, somebody, but so much joy in our hearts because Jesus is infinitely worth it. Amen right there? Like we are really clear on exactly what we're doing. And so today I want to talk about generosity. And let me tell you what, I love talking about generosity. I love it. A couple of weeks ago, I was, we were, I was talking to a friend of mine, and we were talking about that generosity was coming up. It was the next time I was going to preach, and they're like, oh, that's always stressful, intense. It is not, right? I mean, it is not. You know why? Because most of you guys are already generous. A lot of you understand the power of generosity. You know that it is your superpower, right? You know that you are better when you give. One of the things I love to say, and we say it all the time, I'm at my best, I am my best when I give. Let's say this together. I am my best when I give. Now turn to your neighbor and give them something right now, right? You're like, I don't know about that. I don't have cash. Give them a kiss. No, I'm just kidding. That'd be terrible. That'd be weird, right? And so we just know that we're better when we give. Listen, you like to be around people who are generous. They're just better people. It is your superpower. Listen, people who are generous have less stress and more freedom. They have less anxiety and more peace. They have less pressure and more joy. That's what, that is what generosity does for us. We, we are a generous people, man. I'm at my best when I give. The reason why people are generous is because we understand that the church is the hope of the world. Amen? Like if you, hopefully you were here last week and heard Joe. If you didn't, you should go back and listen to a fantastic sermon on the church And just the power of the church, that the church is the hope of the world. Man, it is not a charity. It's not a 501c3. It is not a Christian school. As great as all those things are, Jesus has given us his bride, the church. And when we give and are generous to the church, lives change. 
Man, people get baptized. Marriages get restored. Addicts get free. People find purpose and they store up treasure in heaven. This is what it means to be a generous person, to be the kind of person that God looks at and says, well done. And it seems like the world is leveraged for generous people. And we want to be a generous people because we're a generous church. Now, my, my goal today is not that we would give. Like, I'm not going to close the doors and lock them and take up an offering at the end, um, unless the Spirit tells me to. No, jokes. Um, and it's not that, that we would give. You, you, you have opportunities to give all the time. You kind of understand that, right? You, you know what it's like. And you know what it's about. But my goal today is to be, for you to walk out of here a more generous person. Listen, people don't become generous because of opportunity. You know, we have lots of opportunities to give. Just go to Publix, and when you check out, they'll give you another opportunity to give. We have plenty of opportunities. People are always asking us for money. It's not, it's not because we're able to give. It, it, you're going to find out today that people gave who weren't really even able to give. It's not because we're able to give that we're generous. It's not because of need. We always have needs. People are generous because of the structure of their character, the structure of their character. This is really important. People are generous because of the structure of the character, but because of who they are, not because of what they have. People are generous. Now, now my goal today, I just kind of want to read it. Uh, today, I just want to help us build a generous heart, one that is sacrificial, one that terrifies the gates of hell and echoes at the gates of heaven, a heart that reverberates throughout creation, a generous heart that echoes in eternity. And when you put a stethoscope up to it, you just hear impact, a heart that is countercultural and lives for a different kingdom, a heart that won't buy into the American lie about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but buys into the kingdom truth of life, liberty, and the pursuit of eternity. I want to raise the level of our lives today to be a force multiplier for the kingdom, to of our love for God and of how we see everything. I want to change how we view our stuff, but also how we view people and how we view the kingdom. I want us to be driven by this question. What would a generous person do? What would a generous person do? When you get up from lunch and you've paid the bill, what would a generous person do? You have a conversation with your children that may require a little tough love. What would a generous person do? Man, when you're at work having that conversation around the, uh, in the boardroom or around maybe the water cooler, what would a generous person do? do and having that conversation with your spouse about the future, what would a generous person do? And I think if more people would ask themselves this question, we would be better and we would build a generous life, but also our world would be better. Challenged enough so far? You ready to go? All right. Now, God has given us big stuff to take big risks for the big kingdom. And so I'm coming boldly today because we live in an affluent community. You may say, I'm not that rich. You are. And that's how, that's how the rest of the day is going to go. Um, if, you, if, <laughs> if you're a guest, hey, and you're like, ah, it's always money at church. It's not always money at church. Here's what may happen to you today. This few minutes we have together, it may save your life. It may save your life. So with all that said, let, let's jump into the initiative. Uh, we're going to throw it up on the screen You know, we just want to be a sacrificially generous church. The early church was so in love with Jesus and so devoted to the mission that they gave whatever it took to make it happen. And we have a vision for being that same kind of church. The generosity of our father has displayed in giving his son Jesus compels us to give our lives for the good of others. By 2033, we see our church being debt-free with multiple campuses, 10% of our budget going to missions partners to serve the least of these, 
100% of our church experiencing financial freedom through Financial Peace University, and we see 100% of people engage in sacrificial kingdom generosity. That is the 10th initiative for X Multiply. Now, now as we jump over into, the, into our text for today in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I was just over there sitting next to my wife, and uh, she opened it up, and she has a study Bible, and she makes notes in there just in case we're somewhere and someone asked me to preach, I can just use her Bible, right? And she said, she said, she said that there's no more room for notes in this particular passage, which shows you how much I love teaching on generosity. Um, but, but as you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let me just give you a little snapshot of the context. Uh, they're living in the aftermath of Herod the Great, right? Herod wanted to make Herod great again. That's kind of his motto in life. And I'm going to talk a lot more about Herod in two weeks when we start our Advent series. But Herod was ruthless and cruel. If you remember any of the birth story of Jesus, that, that when, G, when he found out that Jesus had been born, he was afraid that Jesus was going to be greater than he was. And so he couldn't find Jesus, so he just killed all the babies under the age of two. When Herod was about to die, he had 100 people who were kept in prison. And as soon as he died, they had orders to kill them so at least the country would mourn for somebody. This is how ruthless he was. Now, Herod was also one of the greatest visionary builders in antiquity. And he built the Temple Mount. He built Masada. He built uh, Capernaum Maritima, uh, Caesarea Maritima. He built some things that still stand today. And because of his cruelty, the way that he did it was on a heavy taxation system. So Herod taxed people in Jerusalem up to 90% of their income. 90%. I mean, it was like living in Canada. 90%. So there's just this poverty that was happening in Jerusalem. So the church in Jerusalem was struggling. And so Paul has taken a collection from a church in Macedonia and they gave out of their poverty. And he is writing this letter to a church in Corinth because he wants the Corinthian church to give money to the poor who were in Jerusalem. And so this is the context um, that we kind of step into today. And he says, we want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So look at this. You have joy plus poverty equaled overflowing, abundant generosity. Joy, abundant joy. And he starts out, he is not talking about money, but he is talking about grace. Paul is talking about grace. And joy is what it comes to the top. And it looks like between joy and poverty, it erupts in this volcano of generosity. Like, wouldn't you like your life to erupt in a volcano of generosity? Wouldn't you want people to walk by and say, that is a generous person? Well, the first place you got to start is with your joy. Like, how is your joy? Have you ever noticed that generous people are so joyful to be around? They're the people that you call when you need something. Man, they're the people that if they invite you to dinner, you say yes and figure it out later. Like if you want to go on vacation with, if they want you to go on vacation with them, you say yes and not because they'll pay for it, but because it's just going to be a lot of fun. Man, when you have a problem, you pick up the phone and that's the person that you call. Or when you have something to celebrate and we all need more people to celebrate with us, you pick up the person to call, you pick up the phone to call that person. And if they call you and you see their name come up on caller ID, they get answered. Because they are just full of joy. There's a story of a guy in the Bible named Barnabas who was like this. Now, I, Barnabas says he sold a piece of land and he gave it to the apostles to use to help the poor. But it also, his name Barnabas means son of encouragement. Joyful people are just better. I have on my phone one person that when it, 
that when, it, when he calls me, it pops up, it says Barnabas, because I know it's going to be encouraging. Aaron, it's not you. I'm sorry. No, because <laughs> Aaron is a very encouraging person. But we, we all like those kind of people in our lives, and that's because joy, man, joy is always, always upstream from generosity. Joy is always upstream from generosity. I mean, joy is just this deep satisfaction that carries the day, no matter the circumstances. And then he uses this idea, extreme poverty, extreme poverty, not just a little poor, but, but the, the word for extreme is a word that just means like to the depths. Have you ever heard the words dirt poor? Dirt poor, that's what he's talking about here. It's like a friend of mine says, he says, when he was growing up, they were so poor, they would go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, he'd lick other people's fingers. Man, this is the level of poverty that they were experiencing, yet it overflowed into what? Generosity. They gave. Like, why extreme poverty? Man, I have to think. It's because for people who live in extreme poverty, they know what it's like to be hungry. They know what it's like to be thirsty. They know what it's like to worry about a roof over your head, clothes on your back. They know what it's, what it's like to worry about feeding your family. They have empathy. As Pastor Mike talked about a few weeks ago, that empathy is just when you see someone in a hole and you climb down in there with them. And, and that's what happens when you grow up in extreme poverty. And I think sometimes we can forget that people are living in some extreme spiritual poverty. And we forget that the deepest poverty, the most painful poverty, the lasting poverty is spiritual poverty. That people walk without Christ. That people have no hope for the future. And they don't understand how their life comes together. And they walk in confusion and chaos. The Bible says that, that people walk in darkness, but when Jesus was born, they'd seen a great light. And we just always need to be a people that remember that. Amen, somebody? Like, we need to always be a, be a people that remembers that no matter what someone looks like on the outside, inside, they may be facing a serious battle. And we need to let that overflow in our hearts into generosity. Ask yourself this question. Would people use the word joy to describe you? Like when you go to lunch today, just ask who you're at lunch with, your friend, spouse, fiance, waiter, waitress, just say, would you use joy to describe me? If you're a parent, how many parents in here? Ask your children. Anybody scared of that? I said that in this service because none of my kids are in here yet. Man, would, would, would people use joy to describe you? Now, now, as we continue on, we see that generosity is something that's pursued. If you look in verse 3, um, Paul continues writing this. He says, they gave according to their means, so they gave based on what they had. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, <clears throat> as I can testify. And then he said, beyond their means, of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, think about this. They're poor. They're begging Paul to give. Now, don't most people beg you to give? Like, when's the last time you walked up to somebody and you said, I just want to give? And they're like, no, no, really, really, I want to give. Like, if you want to do that, I'll be right here after service. Like, come beg me. But just an amazing heart of generosity, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And then he goes on, and I'll, I'll finish verse five in just a second. Now, now, it starts out with what they had. And, and we're always responsible for, for what we have. Uh, my favorite story probably in the Bible on generosity is the widow's might. Anybody heard the widow's might story? A couple people? Well, I might have to tell it. Okay. People raise their hand. Don't tell it. No, I'm going to tell it. 
So Jesus is in the temple and he's sitting across from where they would have brought the offering and there's these big metal urns that people would have walked by and they would have put their offering in the metal urns. And, and people who were rich and wanted to be noticed, they would put a lot in it, it would make a lot of noise. You know anybody like that, by the way, a lot of noise? Um, but it would make a lot of noise as they put it in. And then while he and his disciples are standing there, this widow comes by. And as this widow comes by, she puts in two small copper coins, like not even worth a penny, and they don't make much noise. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, she gave more than all the rest. And they're like, how? Because she gave all that she had. She gave what she had. I mean, we're responsible to give what we have. Now, fortunately for me, while I did grow up in some level of uh, unrichness, non-richness, non-affluence, however you want to say it, my mom was the example of giving, like just the example of giving. She worked two jobs on the weekends. She would cook food for people. She'd go pick up kids that didn't have a ride to church. I mean, my mom was just generous. And so she would give what she had, whether it was money or whether it was time or whether it was food, whatever, she would give what she had. And so I was able to learn and see generosity that way. But not everybody is that fortunate. Whenever I meet someone who started to give, I always ask them, where'd you learn to give? Who taught you to give? Now, I hope and hope and hope that, that some of you will say, Stephen Gibbs taught me to give. That's what I hope. I hope, hope you say that, but possibly you had someone that showed you how to give, didn't just teach you how to give. There's a story from one of our staff members just recently. Um, after our students had gone to Awake Now and spent the weekend serving, and then uh, Mike had taught on going to the nation's um, this, one, of the, one of our students uh, on staff had been saving money for a PS5. Pretty important if you're a teenager, from what I hear. And so saving up money, had saved up a few hundred dollars to kind of get ready for a PS5. And he comes in after the weekend was over and he brings the money to his mom. And she says, what are you doing? She said, well, I've been saving this for the PS5. She says, but now I know I need to use this money to help tell other people about Jesus. And I want to use it to go on a mission trip gave what he had. Let's go. Man, that's the kind of generation of generosity that we're raising up around this place. Now, now, when you think about what you have, just real quick, one of the things I don't ever want to do is make you feel guilty unless I really want you to feel guilty. Um, and I don't want to do that, but I do want you to feel generous. And so <clears throat> as you, if, I, I don't think you can ride around in our community and think, oh, I wonder how they're doing. <laughs> like that, that's not a question anybody's asking, Right. Um, and so, but a couple of things just to kind of frame up for us a little bit. Now we live here, so it's important. Now, first thing is uh, the average income in our community is just north of $200,000. Okay. Just north of 200,000. Now you may be hearing like, what in the world? Way below average. You just need new friends. That's all it is. But that's just the average income, right? Some people make way more than that. Some people make less than that, but just on average. So it just tells you a level of affluence. So let's just, let's just own it, Right. Let's just own it. You moved here on purpose. You took the job that you took. I mean, you got trained. You got educated. You worked hard. I mean, you did some things. And God is not upset that you make money. God's not upset. Now, he will be upset if you're not generous. I'll get to that part in a second. Now, the average, the median home price in our area, $800,000. Median, okay? I mean, they've got spec houses going up in this area for $2 million. So, so all that to say, this is what we have. Okay. When it says that we have to be generous with what we have, this is what we have. So the question sometimes comes up, how much should I give, right? Because you have the tithe, and we definitely believe the tithe is the beginning 10% of your income off the top. It's kind of how you start. But C.S. Lewis has a great quote 
on, on how much. And he says this. He says, I don't believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comfort, like restaurants, vacations, comfort, luxuries, just think of some of the things we have around our house that are luxuries, microwaves, amusements, entertainment, Netflix, YouTube, TV. Man, man, if our expenditure on those things is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charity is, or what he means here is generosity, if our generosity don't at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. So there should be some things that we want to do, but we can't because we gave money away. But that's only now. Imagine what we get to do in eternity. And, and so if you're wondering about being generous, is it, is it hampering you at all? Has it stopped you from doing some things? Now, now, I understand that for different people, different things that you would not do would be different. Does that make sense? Like for some people on the lower end, you know, not going out to eat may be something that other people would do that you wouldn't. For you, it may be buying a second home, right? As, as crazy as that sounds. But, but when you think about generosity, sometimes we feel like we give the extra and sometimes we want to make it easy for people. And the reality is, is we, we should give until we do without something, until we go without something, that we're pinched a little bit, Lewis says. And so how much, how much? Now, I think what Paul is pointing to is they had a plan for being generous. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, what's my plan for being generous? What is my plan for generosity? Like, it's, there, there's, there's plenty of spontaneous generosity that you can do, whether it's you know, tipping at a restaurant or helping someone who needs something or giving away something that you have extra of. But what about your plan for generosity? If you sat down at the table and somebody asked you what your plan was, have you thought through what your plan was? And if it's that important in light of eternity, it's probably something we should plan for, okay? So what is your plan for generosity? Now, it's for your heart first. It's for your heart first. You need to have a plan for generosity. Now, now in verse five, Paul says this, he says, they didn't give as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So he just starts out this idea, he doesn't say they gave money, right? They gave their what? Gave their lives to God first. That they pursued God first. They prayed, they worshiped, they talked with God to, uh, in community, they went to group, right? They gave themselves to God first and then to us. Then they gave away their money. Because if you wanna start by giving your money, that actually is probably gonna lead to death. Because if you start by giving God money, you're probably gonna expect something back from him. And so you have to be careful that he gets your life first. And so one of the things that we try to do to model generosity as a church is there are times we will engage partners where none of the dollars come through our church. So let me just give you an example of that. Compassion International. How many people uh, have sponsored a kid through Compassion International? At least one. Like a lot of people. They exist to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. And and so we have sponsored over 2,000 kids through our church over the years. And so if you just do some rough math on that, conservative estimates, that's, you know, probably around $6 million on the low end. Could be a little bit higher depending on how long kids stayed in the program and all that. So $6 million out, just out, gone, right? that we didn't ask for, that we encourage people. Why? Because God wants a generous heart. He doesn't want our money. He wants a generous heart. Now, giving clearly follows a generous heart, but it's the structure of our character. You know, Jesus taught a lot about money, and one of the reasons why is because he knows that giving is at the heart of everything that we do. 
And Jesus just relentlessly pushes us in areas that we always want to hold on to. Now, now in, in verse 8, Paul kind of gives a Jesus juke here. And he says this. He says, I don't say this is a command, but I want to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. So he is equating their love for other people that we all know is the great commandment, right? Love God, love people. He's equating their love with what they give in verse eight. And then he says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. One thing to know about X multiply, the driving factor behind it is the incomparable worth of Jesus himself. The driving force behind X multiply, the incomparable unmatchable worth of Jesus himself. Man, Jesus always gave. He always gave. He never took. Let me just read this. At no point did Jesus ever take. He always gave. He gave his compassion to the city of Jerusalem that wanted to kill him. He gave his attention to a woman that everybody ignored. He gave his touch to a leper that no one would look at. He gave his reputation to a woman that no one would choose. He gave a place to people who were left out. He gave hope to people who had given up. He gave proof to people who had doubted. He gave truth to those who wouldn't embrace it. And he gave forgiveness to people who didn't deserve it. Jesus always gave. Jesus never took. Jesus always gave. And he lets us win by giving. Like Jesus gives us this ability to give so that we can experience life that's truly life. It says in verse 7, as you go back up in the text, it says, as you excel in everything. Now, when you see the word excel, you, sh you should say win. As you win in everything, and then he goes on and lists things in faith and speech and knowledge, earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel, see that you win in this act of grace also. So he calls giving an act of grace. So we should think of bank account, not as bank account, but as a grace account. So, because for every dollar that we give, we're giving away grace to somebody. Anybody like grace? Come on, Right? Man, we all want grace. And he says, he says, you're giving away grace every time. Now listen, excel. I love that he put this word in here, especially for our context, because we like to win. Anybody in here like to lose? Exactly, right? We like to win. We, we love to win, like small thing, but I, but I like to win. I try not to show it. Sometimes I just keep my mouth shut. Um, but so one of my neighbors, they were, uh, she was pregnant and they were about to have a baby. This was a couple of weeks ago and they started taking bets on, when the baby was gonna be born, always dangerous, always dangerous. And so most people who wanted to be her friend said, you're gonna give birth before your due date. And because I don't really care what they think about me, I tell the truth. Now, and so I told them the day after your due date. And so Thursday, the day after the due date, guess what happens? The baby is born. Stephen wins. <laughs> but to take it a step further, they come home from the hospital. So I walk out on my front porch and I throw up the victory sign, not because they brought home a baby, but because I won. <laughs> Listen, we like to win, and we like to come out on top. We want to be part of winning organizations, and we want to win at life. We want to win at the things that we do. And Paul says, you have to excel. You have to win at this grace, at this grace of giving. Listen, I really think you are uniquely positioned where you are to leave a mark. And I think we, as a church, are uniquely positioned to leave a mark. We may not write the theological workbooks of the future. We may not do 
a lot of things, but there is one thing we can excel at, the act of grace called generosity. Like God can build in you a heart of generosity that you'll be so proud of, that when you get to the end of your days, you will look back and say, I left it all in the field. And you know what a generous person says at the end? Wish I could have given more. That's what they say. And you can be that kind of person. You can be that kind of person for your children that they know and learn how generous you are and they in turn go and are generous. You can be that kind of person for your neighbors who know that you're a go-to call for them no matter what the circumstances are. And you can be the kind of go-to person for your spouse. You can build a generous heart. This is how you can leave your mark. And we're uniquely positioned as a church to have exponential impact because of the resources that God has given us. Jesus teaches this, to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. And we should just embrace that. And rather than you know, kind of wiggling at it and tensing up about it, let's just embrace it. And you should embrace it as a just individual and then embrace it as a family and just watch what God will do over the years. Behind great movements of God are business leaders, teachers, and real estate agents, and web designers, and consultants, and operations managers behind every move of God. And you're a player in the game, and you can win, and you can win. To whom much is given, much will be required. Now, a couple of warnings that come up in the Bible around that, and again, not, not for us to feel guilty, but this is really just to kind of paint some perspective for us. Over in the book of 1 Timothy, um, Paul wrote to, a, to one of his young protege, Timothy, who had started the church and was pastoring there. And Paul writes these words, and I feel like they're so appropriate for us. And I really take these words personally and seriously as your pastor. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So haughty means to be conceited. Haughty meaning that you find your importance in the things that you have. Right? Don't set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So what Paul is saying is let's remember that the bank accounts we have, the grace accounts we have, the meals that we get, the, the schools our children go to, the cars that we drive, the houses that we live in, the vacations that we get to go and experience, they, they, all, they all came from God, he says. He says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, not our stuff, but life. So um, just a couple of warnings. First of all, this question you should ask yourself, am I winning at giving? Am I winning at giving? Am I winning at giving? Now, now Paul says, warn those in this present age. Let me just give you a couple things that we need to be on look for. I mean, in World War II, what happened was that we mobilized the economy for the war. And family members went to work. We became two income households. And then when the war was over, Japan and other nations are having to rebuild their infrastructure, but we didn't. And so we shifted our economy to consuming. And I think we all get how, how much into consuming we are. We have the CPI that measures inflation, the consumer price index. We measure consumer sentiment. And there was an economist named Victor Lebeau, and he said this. He says, our enormous, enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and the use of goods into rituals, religion, 
that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. So this is what's bombarding us every day. Anybody feel that? Anybody get that? Everywhere, it's, it's consumption, 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 consumption. What you can buy, what you can use. And so our economy is completely built on this game of consuming and burning things up. But it's not working. Just last week, a CNN poll came out. The stock market had been up for a while. Uh, inflation had come down. Unemployment was low. Yet 72% of people in the United States said that things are going badly. And here's what the journalist wrote. She said, it's almost as if human flourishing requires more than material prosperity. Duh. In the absence of something like true religion, it's unclear what there is besides accumulation. So, so just in that, like, are you an accumulator or not? Just think about it for a second. Again, not to feel guilty. I said I wasn't going to do that. We're playing the, sometimes we, we play the wrong game. Let me give this illustration. Um, imagine that <clears throat> you're, you're a lineman for the University of Georgia. Go dogs right there, anybody? No, okay, <laughs> fine. So they have, signed, they, have signed, <laughs> they have signed five linemen for the 2024 season. This is, they average six foot six, 328 pounds. Large humans is what we would say. Now they've trained their whole lives to be offensive linemen, their whole lives. Everything is about that. And they, their heroes are offensive linemen, their coaches their diet, their workout regimen, all of that has been geared toward this moment where they can get to go to a major college and play an off- as an offensive lineman. Everything, their diet, their workouts, everything. But imagine for a minute, all of a sudden they realize my purpose is different. I shouldn't be an offensive lineman. I should be a triathlete. Like everything, now they've got to change everything. Can you imagine a 328-pound person getting on a bicycle? That would be painful. And so they have to now go through a different diet with different coaches and different heroes and different ways of thinking and different training. Everything has to change. And in reality, most of us have been trained in being an offensive lineman, just consuming. And we need to retrain ourselves into being a triathlete for the kingdom economy, for the kingdom economy. And so we need to change how we think. Listen, when we spend years practicing the world's story, we're going to lose the ability to see anything else. And you got to fight for it. Jesus, oh wait, let me just read this little story. This one's really going to depress everybody. But um, anybody had to read 1984, George Orwell, when you were in high school? A lot of people. Okay, so this is a quote from Orwell. Um, He said this. He says, I thought of a rather cruel trick I wanted to play on a wasp. He was sucking jam on my plate, and I cut him in half. He paid no attention. He just went on with his meal while a tiny stream of jam trickled out of his separate esophagus. Only when he tried to fly away did he grasp the dreadful thing that had happened to him. It's the same with modern man. The thing that has been cut away is his soul. Through consumerism, what Orwell says. Jesus calls people. He tells a story. At the end of it, he talks about someone who just had so much grain they had to build bigger barns in Luke chapter 12. Jesus called him a fool because tonight your soul will be required of you. And so we just have to be careful, man. We have, we have to be careful and we save our soul just by reminding ourselves there is more to my life than this life, that I actually can store up treasure in heaven, that I can construct a generous heart that God will be pleased with and that I will be pleased with as well. 
that God has given us the opportunity not to hold back on us, but to teach us how to give. And we get to announce another kingdom. We get to announce another kingdom. In Habakkuk chapter 2, it's a small verse over in the Old Testament. Um, I, I read from Habakkuk a couple of weeks ago, and I made the statement that I think it was the first time I'd ever read from this part of the Bible in 23 years of preaching. And so I thought I'd better grab, I thought I'd better double down on it and read it again. Um, but Habakkuk chapter 2 says this. It says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. So this is a leadership principle that when you have a clear vision, you know what you're running after. Man, and we have done everything we can to make X multiply clear. Amen. Man, we have preached 10 sermons. We have, we have a vision workbook and we have written the vision out in a letter form and we have made 10 videos and then that epic video of me on the rooftop. Man, we have, we have a website where all this stuff's gonna live. We have a dashboard we're gonna build out for the future so that we can run after this together. Man, you can run after it as a family and I promise you, if that's your vision for your family, you'll be happy. Man, you will have accomplished something in your life. Man, if it's our vision as a church, man, we're gonna get to the end of this and we're, we're gonna have, as we said, scars from the journey, but so much joy in our hearts because of all that God did, because of all the lives that were changed, because of all the baptisms that happened. Man, it's just a leadership principle and we just wanted to make it really plain. Man, we can, we can be a sending agency, but you have to become the most generous version of you to make it happen. And I have got to be the most generous version of me to make it happen. And we have to not look out for our own interest, but sometimes we have to go without. And we just have a, have a high level of pursuing generosity. What does it look like for me to give my life for someone else? There's an image in the Bible that says this, generosity is just unfolding my life for the good of other people. Like, don't you love that? Just unfolding my life for the good of other people. I've never met anybody who was generous that said, man, I wish I wouldn't have given that. But I have met people who are generous. They're just full of joy and just wish they could have done more. Why do we do that? Because of the unbelievable generosity of God. The unbelievable generosity of God. At every turn in the Bible, God is giving. At every turn, he's giving us something good. And Jesus, he's the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. Hey, if you don't know him, let me just tell you about him. He is where everything comes together all your restlessness and all your mistakes, all your regrets and guilt and shame. In Christ, they find forgiveness and they find a purpose. Why? Because he was generous and he laid his life down. Jesus was a giver and we want to be the same kind of people because we are Jesus people and we're a Jesus church. Thanks. Let's pray together.